0: Brought your Bible? Turn to First Thessalonians four. One of the uh, one of the recurring patterns you see in New Testament epistle. And it's very prominent in Paul, who is the most prominent of the New Testament epistle writers. These are letters. And and yes, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. We believe what we believe about the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, And nothing that I'm about to say should be taken to diminish that. They are Holy Spirit-inspired books that came to be uh, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit in the early church, assembled into the 27 books of our New Testament. But they also began their life as letters. Just correspondence being written uh, back to churches that Paul was familiar with. And typically in response, or often in response to either uh, a message he had received from the church or uh, something he had heard about the church that caused him to sit down and write. If you're a married person, and you you happen to be in the room when your spouse is on the phone, can you, if you listen, can you reasonably put together what the other person is saying? It doesn't take me long at all. I can almost always tell who Gail is talking to, and A lot of what they're saying to her even if I can't actually hear them because I know Gail really really well and I know the subjects that come up with her different friends or if she's talking to one of our sons or if she's talking to a family member it's not hard for me to be able to go I know who you're talking to and I can almost I can almost tell what they're asking you or what they're saying to you well if you if you are if you will Become an old friend of the Apostle Paul's, and I highly recommend it. It's not not hard sometimes to spot, ooh, he he got asked a question. I know what came up. Well, apparently, in whatever correspondence prompted 1 Thessalonians, one of the things that came up is in the Thessalonian church, uh, the church at Thessalonica, Apparently, they were very, very excited. And some of it had to be tempered with things that he shared in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. But they were excited about the eventual end of the age. I don't blame them. It's it's exciting. It must be an exciting topic. Look around you. This is a Wednesday night at McGregor. So we can't fault the Thessalonian church for being excited when the conversation turned to the end of the age. And apparently... One of the things that was being kind of, they were scratching their heads and discussing was, well, what about people who die? Are they going to miss it? And so apparently a question had come up about people missing the events of the end of the age because they had died. Because Paul writes, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep. And asleep is one of Paul's terms that he often uses for dead. Huh. Well, if I just heard, if I just heard Gail say on the phone, I don't, I don't want you to wonder about people who have died, then I know the other voice on the line must have asked the question about that. So apparently it was a matter of some question and concern in this, little ch- in this church. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope the rest being the lost world. I want your grieving to be different than that of the lost world. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And of course, that is, that is the most fleshed-out sort of moment-by-moment, blow-by-blow, account of what came to be called the rapture of the church in your New Testament. There are other passages that refer to it and I allude to it, but if somebody has one opportunity to, 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 to preach a message regarding the rapture and they're to teach on, on what the rapture has in it, this is typically the passage they're going to go to. And tonight, i am i am uh, let me let me let me review and recap a bit uh, in our in our first evening we uh, we talked about sort of common points of belief that that arise from our church's confession of faith. I shared nine things that are going to happen um, in week number two, I gave an overview of uh, a harmonization an alignment between Predominantly our Lord's great end times sermon, sometimes referred to in shorthand as the Olivet Discourse. Olivet is an adjective, has to do, having to do with the Mount of Olives. So the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives. Uh, there are versions of it in, in all three of Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke. The most uh, unpacked version and the version that we talked through that night was Matthew 24. The, uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and how it closely tracks the uh, six seals in Revelation chapter 6 and also how the Lord in the Olivet Discourse has reached back and, and pulled in Daniel chapter 9 and most specifically Daniel 9:27 when the Lord makes reference in that sermon to the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So we have Daniel 9:27, Matthew 24, and Revelation 6 seeming to tell the same story. Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 and into Revelation 7 both both give us a chronology that take us from from the the 70th week of Daniel, which is a future seven-year period, with the abomination of desolation at its midpoint, according to Daniel, which Jesus said look for, through the first six seals, And then immediately after the sixth seal, which is signs in the sun, moon, and stars, but before the seventh seal, Jesus spoke of the Lord gathering his elect from both the earth and the sky, which parallels nicely with 1 Thessalonians 4 that we just read. And Revelation chapter 7 speaks of the appearance in heaven... Of a mul- an innumerable multitude of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, at the throne of the Lamb, who ha- who are said to have come out of the great tribulation. So week two, and I and there was a handout for that week. Several of you have emailed me. There is a there is a the, the PDF version of that handout. If you didn't get it, is readily available. Um, if uh, I don't know if there are any paper copies of it left lying about, but. Emailing you a PDF doesn't cost me anything. So if you missed the handout from that week and you haven't already emailed me and asked for it, I don't have any problem clicking reply and saying, here it is, and dropping that PDF back to you in an email. Or if it's, if it's not linked to the webpage and I admit I haven't done the obviously exhaustive work Brother Wade has done, checking on how the on-demand player worked. <laughs> Last week, we looked a little bit harder at that, at that 70th week. The tribulation, the first, the first half of it, the beginning of birth pangs. The second half of it, called by Jesus, the great tribulation. And, and the fact that in Matthew 24, it's said to be a bit shortened. We don't know how long, but that, that back half is a bit shortened by an, by an unknown period of time for the sake of God's people. And then the sixth seal and the removal of the church. We talked about the 70th week some last week. Tonight, we're going to talk about the, the, the rapture itself and some characteristics of the rapture. Now, before I go any further, in any time you have a, a group of people this size attending a study at McGregor, um, you've, got some, you've got some folks who are with us tonight for the first time, and I'm glad. Uh, and so I want to make certain, as I have reiterated every week, I want to be really, really clear regarding, regarding uh, the objectives. What, Brother Russell, what are, you, what are you seeking to do by teaching this material? Are you, trying to, are you trying to drag me away from a viewpoint I have held all my life? No. I don't know how to say it plainer. I am absolutely not seeking to do that. I am not, I am not, I am not. I would not do that on a secondary matter. Do I, do I mind causing you to scratch your head? Well, let me tell you what, what three things I'm after. Number one, I've said this every week, number one, that you would know what you believe, and that given a, given a Bible and a legal pad, you have worked out what you believe regarding the, the, the future of the church and the end of the age, that you know what you believe. And I'm not talking about you've got lots of scans of books by other people. I'm talking about you knowing what you believe. It is is a mark of the growing Christian that you would have convictions about what you believe. I too have authors that I love on a broad variety of subjects, but nobody is responsible to be able to articulate what Russell believes, except Russell, and I am responsible to be able to articulate what I believe. I want want that for you. Um, I have taught this material in other settings and had people unload extraordinarily angry responses at me because they perceived that I was um, disagreeing with a viewpoint that they held in, the, in an extremely emotional place for them. And my response to that without fail has been, I understand you are passionate about your belief. In, in this case, it was a pre-tribulational rapture. I, believe, I understand you to be passionate. I want you to be clear. And you and I both know we live in an era where over, over, overly often, in disagreements, passion is being substituted for clarity. If you don't see that happening in the culture around us, you're, you're blind as a bat and deaf as a post. Because <laughs> we're living in an era where apparently the most outraged and loudest voice has the high ground whether their arguments can be made to make any sense or not. Let's not be like that. Let's be able to lay out what we believe and why we believe it. That's my goal for you. And if, and if in, the, in the process of of working to more clearly understand why you believe my view to be incorrect. You come to a more clearly assembled version of your own view, and it happens to be different than mine. I'm so okay with that. And the the time you've spent in the word of God working through your view, you're, you're doing homework I've assigned you. You don't think that makes me happy? I want you to know what you believe and why you believe it biblically. That's far more important to me. Second, you cannot deny whether you whether you see whether you see the church going through the, the difficult events of the 70th week, the future tribulation, whether you whether you end up for yourself concluding that the church will pass through that period or not. The New Testament does inarguably teach that facing significant trouble, difficulty, problem, struggle, persecution is absolutely baked into any New Testament view of what it is to follow Jesus. In this world you will have trouble, said, our G- said Jesus in Matthew, in John 16.44. And throughout. It's, it's difficult to find. I don't think you could find a book of the New Testament that doesn't include in it be, be ready to face difficult times if you intend to faithfully follow Jesus. I would desire that you, that you have that in your own framework, that your Christian faith be a, be, a, be a difficult times ready Christian faith. Because at the end of the age is another thousand years and none of us are in our bodies to see it from the earth perspective. You're still going to have to deal with difficult days as a believer. And the most absurd point I've ever heard any pre-tribulationalist try to make, and by the way, I've heard heard mid-tribulationalists make absurd points, I've heard people who hold my pre-wrath position make absurd points, I certainly have made absurd points, so I'm not pleading innocent to that, but one of the most absurd points I've ever heard the pre-tribulationalist, a pre-tribulationalist person take is that the Lord would never allow his people to pass through events like the events described in the 70th week under those first five seals, that the Lord would never allow his people to go through famine, war, Martyrdom. Really? In fact, there's never been an age where God's people haven't had to deal with those things. We've not all had to deal with them all at the same time, I suppose. I'll give you that. Oh, that our faith would be ready for very difficult days, and I'm sorry, but you're going to face them. Now, um, And I don't have to tell you that. And then my third third objective. We we must be able to dwell in peace and and, and liberty and, and joyful love for one another within the boundaries of the essentials of our faith even as we disagree on secondary matters. We've got to be able to do it. If we can't do that, we're going to carve people out of our lives until we're standing on a tiny little island by ourselves. And the difficulty with that is I'm not certain I always agree with me on every secondary matter. I'm a work in progress. I'm a student. And and January 2019, Russell, is unlikely to disagree, uh, to agree thoroughly with January 2018, Russell, on every secondary matter. I mean, at at what point did you finish learning everything the Word of God was ever going to teach you so that your beliefs on secondary matters are no longer subject to any change at all? At what point did you get there? Me either which means I am unlikely to always agree with me. Right? So we've got to be able to say, wow, we see that differently. Let's go, let's go uh, take Brother Bill's evangelism class and let's learn how to tell people about Jesus. Because telling people about Jesus is not a secondary matter. That's a primary matter. The evangelistic duty of the church is not a secondary matter. Right? Tonight we're going to talk about the rapture. Um, Roman numeral one. It is sequential. Sequential. It, it comes in sequence with some other events. I already touched upon this. Uh, dealt with it in some detail in week two. It is, it is placed at the end of a period, it is placed explicitly at the end of Daniel's 70th week by Jesus in Matthew 24. So the events of the 70th week, including, including the abomination of desolation, Daniel 9, again, Daniel 9, 27 matters because Jesus reached back into the book of Daniel and pulled Daniel 9, specifically verse 27, into a future sequence of events that he was telling his disciples about. And Daniel 9, 27 is where we, where we get this terminology of Daniel's 70th week, and I talked about that some last week. That, that chronology laid out by the Lord in Matthew 24, paralleled very closely by the six seals that mark the beginning of the end in the book of revelation culminates with the rapture the six seals tracking along with Matthew 24 culminate right after the sixth seal with the appearance in heaven of this innumerable multitude who are said to have come out of the great tribulation it it it's a, a sequential series of events. It's sequential. Roman two. It is it is in fact surprising. I just read the bulk of first Thessalonians, the latter part of First Thessalonians chapter four remember that in, in, in the original, the chapter and verse breaks aren't there. The chapter and verse breaks you have in your Bible were not, Apostle, the Apostle Paul did not number his sentences with tiny little half size font numbers. And he didn't take a breather and say, he, didn't, he, didn't, he wrote in sentences and paragraphs. Later, editors, being kind to you and me, imposed this framework of chapters and verses so that we'd be able to look stuff up. And that's a good thing, but it's, it's um, so don't think of the chapter break in a, in a New Testament letter as being necessarily any sort of break in subject matter or flow. Paul has just said, therefore encourage one another with these words, this description of the rapture and the resurrection, the, 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 the dead in Christ coming with Jesus and the dead in Christ rising. Because what's happening there is those, those saints that have died are with Jesus, but they have not yet received their resurrection bodies. That's true of every Christian whose funeral I have ever done. They have gone to be with Jesus. They are themselves. They are with Jesus. But they have not yet received their resurrection body. That happens on the day of the rapture. So they are both coming with Jesus and rising from the grave, or from the ash heap, or from the sea, or from wherever, whatever, of their mortal remains is gathered. And by the way, that is, some have taken that to be an an affirmation of traditional burial over other forms of the disposition of remains. I rather disagree. I get the, I think a picture of the resurrection may be most clear in traditional burial, but, it, but I don't see a compelling biblical argument. I believe that the, the creator who creates from nothing can recreate from anything. And when the dead in Christ rise, I think they're going to rise. The fact of the matter is there are, I'm certain that there are um, molecules of carbon in my body today. If you take all the carbon on earth and shake it up, and, and I'm certain there are mar, m- molecules of carbon in my body today that were once a part of a skin cell on Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> so he's not going to get every bit of himself back. I've got some of him, right? Just that, that, But the Creator's got all that figured out. Um, Therefore, comfort or encourage one another with these words. Now, about the times and the seasons, brothers, you do not need anything to be written to you. He has not changed the subject. He's, he's, we, we flip over into chapter 5, but he doesn't change the subject. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, he was talking about the rapture a moment ago without question. And then he says, you don't don't need much more from me. You already know that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night by implication. And I think, I admit that it's an implication, but I think it's pretty clear. He too here is speaking of the rapture as being concurrent with the day of the Lord. He doesn't say, you you, you don't, we're talking about the rapture, you don't need anything further from me because you know the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. Seems to me he's linking the rapture fairly closely with the day of the Lord. Read on. That phrase, by the way, thief in the night, is used twice in the New Testament. It's used here and in 2 Peter 3.10. In both times, in the very same sentence, he's talking about the day of the Lord. If he's talking about the rapture at all, then he must also be Then it must be accepted that the rapture and the day of the Lord occur at the same time. As they do in a pre-wrath rapture, as they do not in a pre-tribulation rapture. I shared with you before, catching that truth, that the thief in the night metaphor goes with the day of the Lord, not some earlier secret, quiet removal of the church was the first thing I noticed that caused me to begin to scratch my head and wonder if the pre-tribulationalism of my childhood and youth, in fact, held together biblically. You know that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And when they say peace and security, then sudden destruction comes on them like labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. That is, the day of the the Lord is going to come on them when a time when they believe they have comparative peace and safety. I believe it's because they believe that they're doing a very good job wiping out all these troublesome religious extremists. I believe the they saying peace and safety uh, overlays nicely with the fifth seal, the martyrdom of believers. We will be apparently seen to be quite worth killing in the uh, upheaval of the 70th week. But you, brothers, are not in the dark so that this day should overtake you like a thief. Thief in the night has nothing to do with your expectation, believer. Did you just see what he said? Thief in the night, you're not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of the night or of darkness. So then we must not sleep like the rest. We must stay awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we are of the day, we must be sober and put the armor of faith and love on our chests. Put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. We uh, we need to be living in readiness for difficulties. Armor up. For God did not appoint us to wrath. And he did not. We'll talk about the wrath. Wrath is not the 70th week. Wrath is not the tribulation. Wrath is the day of the Lord. And we'll see that in the book of Revelation before we're done this evening. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, very much a shout-out back to chapter 4, where he dealt with those two categories in the rapture. We will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. It's going to be very surprising to unbelievers when the cosmic signs of the sixth seal appear in heaven and the Christians disappear from the earth. But it will not be an out-of-nowhere surprise to believers. We are not in darkness, that that day should overtake us as a thief. Um, Second Peter, the other other place where the specific word picture of thief in the night is used with with, with exactly those words. Second Peter 3. From the start of the the chapter down through verse 7, he basically says to expect scoffers to not take seriously that God is taking human history in a direction. Expect scoffers who say that, no, everything has kind of always existed just like it is right now. Um, Verse 8, dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord does not delay his promise, that is the promise of his return, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, what day? The day that's coming like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. That day that's coming as a thief is not some silent, secret disappearance. It is a cataclysmic day when viewed from the earth's perspective that is coming like a thief. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. This would be a great place for him to say, as you wait to vanish from the earth before any of this matters. It would be a great place for him to say that. As you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be on fire and dissolved and the elements will melt with the heat. Based on this promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. It is surprising to the lost world. It is anticipated joyfully by believers. Roman numeral three, it is sudden. It is sudden. When when the signs appear in the sky, the sixth seal's signs, then Matthew 24, 27 says that that the Lord's Lord's appearing will be like a lightning flash. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 describes it as the sudden onset of labor pains. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 describes it as a moment, the twinkling of an eye. I've heard all kinds of, you hear, you hear stories, preachers tell stories, and I'm one of them, um, and I don't know if they're reading each other's blogs, <laughs> or, or just listening to each other's sermons. It's, it's like, um, one of my favorites down the years has been the, the. Uh, oh boy, I'm about to lose some of you who have tracked with me through this entire study, <laughs> the Needle's Eye Gate. Take a chance. Yeah. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. When Jesus said, and we, talked, we dealt with this, on because this came up in Luke, we dealt with this on a Sunday morning here, when Jesus told the folks that it was like that a rich person getting saved was like a camel passing through the eye of a needle. And his disciples responded, who then can be saved? Because his disciples knew Jesus was describing a frank impossibility. What Jesus was saying is, you can, if you're rich and you get saved, it's like threading a needle by walking a camel through it. Oh. And his disciples knew he was discussing an impossibility. Read it in context. But I have heard down the years numerous nice guys say, Well, you know, there was this gate in Jerusalem called the Needle's Eye Gate. <laughs> I'm even told that there was once a guide in Jerusalem who would point it out. And a camel could go through that gate, but ready, ready, ready for this? He had to get on his knees and drop his baggage. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) There is no evidence of any kind that there ever was such a gate. Some preacher somewhere in his study with a legal pad came up with a turn of phrase never bothered to research it, got it out there into the speaker's universe, it got started getting repeated, it took on a life of its own, and somebody will preach that passage that way this Sunday somewhere. All right? I have heard, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, the twinkling of an eye, that scientists have determined that the twinkling of an eye is actually point zero 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 seven three nanosecond. Oh, Please! You know what a twinkling of an eye is? It's real quick. <laughs> it's real quick. And when the Lord himself descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ rise first, and then we who are alive and remain go to meet the Lord in the air, that's going to happen real quick. It's going to happen real quick. So it, it, is, it is sudden. Roman numeral Roman numeral 4 It is soon It is soon However it has been soon for nearly 2000 years Now You're, um, you're interested in end-time study, and you're a grown-up, or at least close to being one, depending on, I think there might be some young people here, but, but you're, you're a thinking person, and, and, and you've been paying attention. So you, you, you will by now have concluded, probably, that, that a pre-wrath view of the timing of the rapture, which view I hold, is not compatible with imminence, the belief that the Lord, that the rapture of the church could occur today. For many of you, that belief has been held in an emotional spot. It was for me. There are people far smarter than I am who have held that view. There are people I greatly admire who hold that view. There are brothers and sisters in this body of Christ whom I have the joy of loving and whom I pray love me out of Biblical obligation, if for no other reason. We'll start there. We'll start there. <laughs> um, in James, wrote the book of James in about, well, prior to AD 50. The book of James is the first book written in the New Testament. It's not the first to occur. The Gospels occur first. James, who wrote the book of James, is James the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't even come to be a believer until until after the resurrection. I used to wonder about that. How how is it that that the siblings that grew up with Jesus weren't believers themselves until after the resurrection? But I, 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 I think I absolutely understand it. Raise your hand if you, and if, and if the person is in the room, be nice. <laughs> Raise your hand if you were raised in the shadow of an overperforming older sibling. My hand will go up first. My big brother Van never bent a curfew, let alone broke one, kept his room immaculately neat graduated valedictorian of his high school class. I'm two years younger than him, and none of that is true of me. All my childhood and youth, and I have great parents who love my big brother Van and who love me. I have great parents. But all through those years, did I ever hear, why can't you be like Van? Have you looked at Van's room? as to how a room should look. You know, Van never gave us this kind of problem. All I know is that Van had this same teacher, and he said the teacher isn't that difficult, and you keep getting C's. Oh, how I heard it. Can you imagine growing up as the younger sibling of Jesus? who never disobeyed, disrespected, who performed, who hit everything out of, out of the park in terms of everything. He was living perfection. If I'm his younger sibling, I hate his guts. <laughs> I, I, all I see is that he's making my life miserable by comparison. And I'm I'm being a little flippant, but for me, for me, that explains the mystery of his siblings rejecting his Messiahship for all those years. They grew up in the shadow of an utterly perfect older brother. I think it, I think it probably bred a lot of resentment. Couldn't help but. But then there's this thing of not staying dead. And, you know, you can do all the subtle and complicated apologetics you want to, and I'm glad, I'm glad for opportunities for members of this body of Christ to learn basic apologetics so that you're ready for conversations with the lost world. But when it's all said and done, he did not stay dead, and you've got to reckon with that. That's kind of a biggie. And so in the wake of that, the younger siblings of Jesus become believers and james his 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 half brother author of the book of james actually turns up in the book of acts as as the first seemingly lead pastor of the church at jerusalem when the church of jerusalem when the when the role of the apostles is diminishing in the book of acts and the role of the elders is arising in leadership over the church at jerusalem James emerges among those elders as the one who seems to be the one who talks the most. Kind of. James writes the book of James from Jerusalem to the believers that are scattered about. And in James, there's a long section about the relationship between the gospel of grace and, and the works of the Jewish law. Interestingly enough, and I'm just trying to put James in a framework for you, James does not mention the Jerusalem Council, where that very subject was discussed by the apostolic leaders of the church in Acts 15. If the Jerusalem Council had already occurred, I believe James would have mentioned it. He doesn't. Which pushes the book of James back before A.D. 50, making it the most antiquated book in your New Testament. The first book where where an inspired author picked up a pen and created a work that became part of your New Testament I believe is the book of James. The only one perhaps written pretty clearly before AD, even AD 50. And James says this, therefore brothers, this is James chapter 5 beginning in verse 7, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Oh, it's close. Oh, it's soon. And I don't believe James was wrong. I believe it is soon. I believe it was soon. But that does not set aside the events that must happen first that are taught in other places. It is soon, but it is not imminent. Let me me, um, me talk to you a little bit about about the history of the imminentist pre-tribulationalist position. Another story. Not here. I was in, on staff at First Baptist Ocala in the mid-90s, and I remember this because I, uh, I had to go back and research the dates, but I, ha- I remember the story. Terry Williams, who sometimes helped us here as a, as a, as a, a, when he was with the Florida State Convention doing some music stuff. Terry was our music minister at First Baptist Ocala, and uh, this came out in a conversation he had with me. One Sunday morning, Terry introduced, and can it be, to the congregation at First Ocala. And can it be that I, we sang it here, recently on a Sunday morning. After that service, he had someone approach him and say, why are you always trying to get us to learn all these new songs? I want to sing more of the old stuff. And Terry said, what do you mean? That new one with all those confusing words. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Well, now you know the punchline to this, right? And Terry said, so, so when you talk about the old songs, what do you mean? Well, you know, like, How Great Thou Art. <laughs> you know, the old song. And Can It Be was, was written by Charles Wesley in 1738. <laughs> the version of How Great Thou Art did not originate in English. The English translation of How Great Thou Art that we sing was translated into English in 1949. So, And Can It Be is not a new song. It's 200 years older than the version of How Great Thou Art that you've sung all your life. The pre-tribulational position, someone someone will have asked, what is this new pre-wrath position? What is this, I want the old position. The pre-tribulational position with which I was raised came into existence in 1840. J.N. I think J stands for Jonathan. J.N. Darby. D-A-R-B-Y. You've got a search engine. You can check me on this. J.N. Darby delivered a series of 11 lectures in Geneva, Switzerland in 1840 that is the first thoroughgoing assembling of the pre-tribulational imminentist position. That position dates from 1840. There have been various attempts to find the position in the teaching of the early Church Fathers. It is not there. There are some words and phrases and paragraphs that can be played with, but deeper research reveals that the early Church Fathers did not hold to a, a modern pre tribulationist position. Now, Darby is teaching this in Geneva, Switzerland. Darby himself was British. He was, a, he was a member of the Plymouth Brethren denomination. The, the position did not take hold in the United States until, until after the publishing of the most honorable, most influential, praise God for it, Schofield Bible, 1909. The first edition of the Schofield Bible, published in the United States in 1909, brought the imminentist pre trib position into North America. So if you say, well, I don't like these newfangled positions, I want to be a pre tribber, you're holding to what is, in the course of Christian history, a quite newfangled position. Now, if it's biblically true, that doesn't matter. I get that. But let's think about that imminentist position for a minute. Setting aside for a moment the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus probably, in addition to talking about the end of time, also was talking about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70. Certainly in Luke 19, Jesus prophesied the A.D. 70 destruction of the temple at Jerusalem when he said, as he approached and saw, this is, this is Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. Think with me through this. As he approached and saw the city, speaking of Jerusalem, he wept over it. If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So in the early A.D. 30s, Jesus Jesus predicted with a great deal of detail what was going to come in Jerusalem, which actually happened in A.D. 70. Catch that. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, specifically prophesied regarding a future event that would take place in A.D. 70. So let me ask you something. Did we have to make it to A.D. 70 without being raptured? Seems to me we did. The Apostle Paul died as a martyr in Rome in the early A.D. 60s. So nothing in Paul can teach imminence, because Jerusalem wasn't destroyed yet when Paul died and Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. That takes the writing of the Apostle Paul off the table with reference to imminence, in my view. Let me ask you another question. In John 21, as he's restoring Simon Peter, that wonderful conversation, uh, it's one of the most Beautiful, poetic, poignant conversations in the New Testament. On the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. When they had eaten breakfast, this is the resurrected Christ. Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said to him, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, and you know the answer to this. Why did Jesus ask him the question three times? Because he denied him three times. You don't think Simon Peter's going one, two, three? Three, during this conversation, of course he is. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time. I think that's the moment when Peter said, oh, we're going three against three here. I get to make three affirmations where not that long ago I made three denials. Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. Simon Peter, there is a future for you in which you grow old and die quite terribly. Does Simon Peter have to grow old and die quite terribly in light of that prophecy? Of course, he does. So during those years, it was certainly not the case that you had an imminent rapture. Not until Simon Peter's had time to grow old, however long that is. You've got to get past the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, which takes the Apostle Paul off the table. You have to have, oh, and and, and to which one would say, okay, okay, it's not imminent at the very beginning, but it comes to be imminent. Oh, man, do I agree. It comes to be imminent right after the sixth seal. (laughs) Nothing that I can find, and if you disagree with me, again, please, Do not, as I passionately hold the point of view that I hold, please don't forget what I spent 15 minutes explaining at the beginning, that you and I don't have to tear each other's throats out if we disagree. I spent a significant period of time, and I have returned to it again and again, looking for a passage in the New Testament that speaks to the chronology, not an offhand turn of phrase, but something that speaks to the order and chronology of future events that puts an imminent rapture next. I can't find it. What I do find is the Olivet Discourse, an end times message by the Savior that puts the rapture after the tribulation. What I do find are the events of the seals, those six seals, and that multitude appearing in heaven in a way that aligns exactly with what our Lord taught on his end times message. I find descriptions, you say, well, well, I, I, doesn't Titus 3 call, call the, the rapture our blessed hope? And how can it be our blessed hope if we have to pass through something else before it comes? Oh, come on. I hope I have a great Christmas this next year. I am very hopeful about Christmas 2019. Did I just say that Thanksgiving's not going to happen? Did I just rule out the 4th of July? I can have a great deal of hope regarding Christmas 2019 while at the same time being quite clear that there's some stuff that's going to happen first. I, I just... With, with great, awesome respect to men that I have known and loved who hold to eminence. Men like Adrian Rogers. Men like John MacArthur. I am very aware that I disagree with those brothers on this. Very aware and humbled by it. And I go slowly to my conclusions when I disagree with those brothers. But I just can't find eminence and the pre-tribulational position. In a passage that does, outside of the Olivet Discourse and outside of the seals, we've alluded to this some before, but come with me to 2 Thessalonians. In a passage that is specifically about timing and sequence, 2 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. And again, what a great place to say, don't sweat it, that's what's next. Brace yourself. And I'm I'm using casual language. I hope, I hope, I hope that I'm not quote-unquote making fun of a different... Someone asked me, A dear brother whom I love asked me if during the course of this study I would be giving equal time to other viewpoints. And my smiling response was, not to overmuch quote Rush Limbaugh, whom I understand says this sometimes, I am equal time. So no, I am not going to give equal time to other viewpoints. I cannot teach what I'm not convicted to believe. This is a paragraph that speaks specifically to chronology and sequence. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, we ask you brothers not to be easily upset in mind or trouble either by spirit or by uh, a message or by a letter as if from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Now see what he just did. He just put the coming of the Lord and our gathering to him in one package at the day of the Lord. That just happened in this text, but read on. Remember, what is in view is the coming of the Lord and our gathering to him. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary publicizing that he himself is God. Paul just said, Oh, how often have I heard or read someone say, that the Bible doesn't say there's anything that has to happen before the church is gathered to her Lord in the rapture. I really, really beg to differ. In fact, I think that's what this paragraph just said in a pretty simple way. There's nothing nothing mysterious or elaborate. It's very plain language. That day won't come until there comes a season of apostasy, and that is False believers falling away in droves. Martyrdom will do that for us in the fifth seal. And the man of sin is revealed and exalts himself above God, sitting in the temple claiming to be God. That's the abomination of desolation. Yeah, there's something that comes first. It is soon. Even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come is a prayer that makes sense. You say to yourself, well, we might have... Wait a minute, I don't, I don't, I don't want to face that. I don't want to face the possibility of, of famine and war. I certainly don't want to face... You know what I don't want to face? I don't want to face colon cancer. I don't want to face degenerative heart disease. I don't want to face dementia. If I have to face a seven-year period of worldwide upheaval and food shortages, and possible martyrdom. Can I tell you, I don't find that any scarier than any number of other ways my life might end. And I'm not making light, but this, this, this visceral response for a believer against the possibility of passing through the 70th week to, 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 if, if, if you survive it? What do you mean, if you survive it? You mean I might die? Yeah, I'm sorry that's news to you. Um, (laughs) If you survive it, to be installed in your resurrection body, having never faced death? Yeah, that's blessed hope enough for me. Oh, even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Finally, it is sparing. S-P-A-R-I-N-G. It spares the believer from the wrath of God. The 70th week, the tribulation period, is not a season of the wrath of God. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Well, for just verse 10. I'm jumping in in the middle of a sentence for the sake of time. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The rapture will spare us the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 Verse verse nine. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, in that time period, as the Lamb seated on the the Lamb takes the scroll in chapter five. And we've talked about that. I talked about it on a Sunday morning. We've talked about it in here. Revelation chapter 5, when the Lamb takes the scroll, is the true beginning of the end. When when heaven is surveyed and only one who is found worthy to put himself forward as the Lord and master of the consummation of history. That's the narrative of Revelation 5. When the Lamb is found worthy to take the scroll in hand and unseal the seven seals thus putting in motion the end of the age, and only Jesus, only Jesus, because of what he has done, as God the Son can take that scroll. And then he begins to pop those seals, and that is the events of chapter 6, which align with the events of the 70th week from Matthew 24 and Daniel 9. When he gets to the sixth seal... After the martyrdom and the wars and the food shortages and the other things. And then I saw him open the sixth seal. I'm in Revelation 6:12, And a violent earthquake occurred. And the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. And the entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky separated like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, remember this day has come on them like a thief. These these leaders on the earth, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb because the great day of their wrath has come. Those two occurrences of the word wrath right there, that's the first time in the book of Revelation the word wrath occurs. Nothing prior to that point is described by the book of Revelation as being the wrath of God. The wrath of God in the New Testament is used in two connections, eternity in hell and the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Signaled by the sixth seal. Next week, we'll talk about the day of the Lord. It is, it is in the book of Revelation. It is, it is the trumpet and bowl judgments that are set in motion by the opening of the seventh seal after an innumerable multitude appear in heaven right after the sixth seal, an innumerable multitude appears in heaven coming out of the great tribulation. My pre-trib friends say those are the tribulation saints. My, my, my much respected who sold more books than I'll ever, this there is sold more books than I'll ever get around to reading. Tim LaHaye would say that they are the tribulation saints. The problem is there's just too many of them. You can't count them. And they come from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And they come out of the great tribulation, Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Then in chapter 8, the day of the Lord begins in earnest with the opening of the seventh seal, which triggers the trumpet and bowl judgments and have been labeled Now, as the day of the wrath of God upon the earth, and they're horrific. They're what we miss because of the rapture of the church. Let me pray, and we'll be done. Lord, you love us, and nothing that's true about our salvation by grace through faith is gonna become any less true in the end of the age. Nothing about your love for us is any less true at the end of the age. Just like nothing about your love for us is any less true on the day we get the bone cancer diagnosis. Or the day we attend the funeral of a loved one. Your love for us is not diminished or Insulted by your allowing us to pass through seasons of great difficulty as our brothers and sisters before us down the 2,000 year history of the church have passed through great difficulty in times and places. And Lord, we love you back. And we want our faith to be tough times ready. We want to be able to stand firm in what we believe, even if doing so costs us our lives. You said that if anyone would follow you, they've got to take up a cross and follow you, and the cross is the instrument of a terrible death. Perhaps for most of us you meant that metaphorically, but for some you have meant it literally. May we be worthy of that moment should that moment come to us. (laughs) And Lord, I'm not asking for that. (laughs) Um, There are lots of ways my life on earth could end that I'd prefer to either martyrdom or a long, slow, terrible degenerative disease. But you've already written my story and you are trustworthy with it as you are with that of every believer in the room. Lord, may, may our takeaway of takeaways be, when it's all said and done, may our takeaway be that we want to be found in Christ now, tomorrow, at the end of the age and forever. If there's anybody who's here who's, who's just super curious and super interested in the end times, between all the detailed verses and all the charts and all the cross-references, may they not miss the fact that salvation is found in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners. And if they will turn from their sin and place their faith in Him, they can live forever in a place called heaven. Now, Lord, we, we are the church in here gathered tonight. May we go out and effectively be the church scattered in the days ahead till we regather here on the Lord's Day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good night.